0: Um, before uh, turning your Bible to Proverbs, I want to take you to the New Testament just to set the table for us this morning. So if you would uh, hold your place there in Proverbs and flip over to Ephesians. And uh, I want you to see um, how this plays out here because it's, it's there's an important connection I want you to see as we parachute into Proverbs today. Uh, head over to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, As you're turning there, uh, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians really articulate the biblical gospel. Uh, We have um, what's going on in this book is uh, a a revealing of sorts, as the Apostle Paul writes to uh, the folks at uh, Ephesus, of uh, who Jesus is and what he's done uh, in his drawing people to himself and his life and death and resurrection and how Christ's work brings sinful people into relationship with God, restoring that relationship, forgiving their sin, as those people put their faith and trust and confidence in Christ alone. And that's what we really, we see articulated in the first three chapters of, of Ephesians. And then if you uh, look at chapter four, verse one, there's a hinge where, uh, Paul now takes uh, what he's just said about the gospel and he says, okay, how should that affect your life today? And, and I would suggest to you, uh, whether you're a new Christian, whether you're, there, whether you're a seasoned Christian or somewhere in between, a very good question to be asking yourself on a regular basis is this, how should the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ be affecting my life today? And that's what, that's what we're going to see here, and then we'll connect it with where Paul goes here with what we're talking about in Proverbs. So just follow along with me as I read chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, here it is, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then he goes on to describe uh, some of the aspects or characteristics of that, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So so the the, the answer to the question, how should the gospel affect my life today, is that we should walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Christ has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, as the Scripture tells us. He has reconciled us to himself through Christ. He has forgiven us of our sin. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And, and so now, with, with that new relationship uh, to God through the Lord Jesus, we now live and strive to walk in a manner that is consistent with or worthy of that calling. And you say, well, how does that work? I have no idea how how that works. What does that mean? Well, you just keep reading. And what you find out is he talks about unity in chapter 4. He talks about how the church should operate, teachers, pastors equipping the saints for the work of service, believers in the body of Christ using their gifts to build up one another to maturity and to unity. He moves on at the end of chapter 4. He talks about how we communicate, how we resolve conflict with each other. Matter of fact, if you're, if you're going to try to get together with family or church or anybody, guess what? You're going to have some conflict. You're going to have to communicate with people. And so he talks about how our faith intersects with relationships with others. Uh, he talks in chapter 5 about uh, personal life, about purity, and walking in faithfulness, walking without greed. He, he talks about avoiding uh, joking and, and jesting that are coarse and unhelpful. Uh, he talks about uh, participation in the world and how we need to not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness but rather to expose them and trying to learn, chapter 5, verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord and then live that out in life. And then he turns the corner in verses 22 and following, and he begins to talk about the family. And this is the connection I want you to see. Paul gets to who Jesus is, what is the gospel, how does that affect my life. I'm living that out every day, and that should affect the family. It should affect how we relate in marriage, how we relate in parenting. And that leads us to chapter 6, verse 1, where he says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you that you may live long on the earth. That's the command of God to children. And uh, for many of us that are parents in here, those are some of the first verses we taught our kids, right? Uh, God's instructions to children. And then here's one of basically only two parenting verses in the whole New Testament. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I I, uh, reminded you last time that the the admonition there, there's something that fathers should not do and there's something that fathers should do. Uh, It's very easy to provoke our children to anger and so there's a warning to avoid uh, provocation of children. Uh, And then there's a good thing that we should pursue. Instead, bring them up. That that, uh, verb there, bring them up, means raise them to maturity. Is what that means. Bring them up to maturity. And uh, not just in any way, but it says we bring them up to maturity with, with two guideposts that um, sort of point us, give us a, a compass direction in the right way. Uh, in the discipline, that word means training, and that parallels the word we looked at in uh, Proverbs last time. And instruction, instruction is actually the word uh, counsel. It's where we get, uh, if you've heard the term neuthetic counseling before or biblically-based counseling, that well, that's our word there. So we're bringing children up in the training and counsel or counseling, we might say, of the Lord. Now notice, and and this was sort of the, the big thought for last time, where does God put the focus of responsibility, the weight of responsibility for the training of children? Cece's mouthing fathers. That's right. Yeah, it's it's on dad. And again, not that mom isn't important. Mom plays a really important role, and we're going to see that uh, here and in Proverbs. But it's dad that God calls to shoulder the weight of parenting responsibility. And uh, and I would suggest to you that that's really a lost art today. The idea of fatherhood, the idea of a dad engaging with his children, and and uh, maybe you've done this before. Do any, uh, don't raise your hand because I don't want I want to call you out. But um, have you ever just watched you know it's it's prime time and you flip on any of the shows right? Flip on any of the shows. Find an example of a dad that's. Not a biblical dad. I mean, that, that's too high of a stand. That's too much to ask for. Just just a moral guy taking his family seriously. Zero. Yeah, what's that? Zero. Yeah, I would say zero or very, very few. And, um, you know, dad today is a cut-up. He's the family jokester. He's the idiot. Uh, good thing mom's there to rescue him out of all the predicaments he gets in, right? That's if he's even there. Very, very good point, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of them, it's dad's not there, or you've got you know two moms, or or even shows today with with uh, two men uh, in the home, and that's that's normal family. Um, so yeah, that's true. You got the absentee dad, dad's not around. In a lot of cases, grandparents. That's true. And I'm glad you brought that up. Um, one of the things we see in our counseling ministry, and uh, some of you certified counselors in the room speak to this if you if you can, um, we regularly see. Uh, families where, that's absolutely correct, where, where it's not mom or dad that's raising the children, it's the grandparents. Very it really is. So all that to say, what we're going to talk about today is pretty radical. In, in fact, um, committing to what we're going to talk about today is one of those things that if you try to begin a conversation with one of your friends, they may be like, what on earth are you talking about? Um, so let's turn now back to the book of Proverbs. And uh, let's pick up our study where we left off last time in Proverbs chapter one. And um, <clears throat> and uh, let's let's uh, rediscover the lost art of fatherhood. Can we do that? Rediscover the lost art of fatherhood. And and uh, I'll just remind you of the verses that we've uh, been looking at. Proverbs chapter one, verse eight. Hear my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head. They are ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like sheol, even whole, as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Okay, that's what we looked at last time. And let's—I uh, just want to review for those of you that may have missed it, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, pick up where we left off. Okay. First of all, there are several things that we need to look at. The, the title of the message. This is part two of Fatherhood and Friends, as we come into um, this section today. Notice, first of all, and this is review from last time, that wisdom begins in the home. One of the things that screams off the page as we open the book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom, this book of great instruction, is that wisdom begins in the home. That's where it's supposed to begin in God's master plan. And notice it's not just anything happening in the home, but like we saw in Ephesians 6, God singles out dad as the primary delivery vehicle of wisdom as children are being raised in the home. Now, now, notice, these are not explicit in the text. These are what I call things that come out of the white spaces of the Bible. Now, not that we're dreaming them up or making them up. They're things that are assumed to be true on the basis of verses 8 and following. So just, just think with me. Reading verse 8, hear my son your father's instruction, do not forsake your mother's teaching. What are the things that are assumed by that verse? Well, look, look with me here, just by way of review. That dad is with the children. He's not always somewhere else. He's with the children. He has to be around in that situation. And notice, secondly, he's engaging the children. So it's not that he's bodily present, but mentally absent, as is so easy to do in fatherhood, but he's there. He's engaging the children. He's talking to them. He's having a relationship with them. He's doing things with them. He's, he's uh, uh, starting conversations. He's um, uh, just engaging them at all levels. And notice also, he takes the initiative to teach and train chil- children. Hear my son, your father's instruction. Guess what? Dad's having a meaningful conversation with his children. He's not barking out orders to just take out the trash. He's not just... Um, uh, venting his frustrations about, you know, Legos on the floor, things like other 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 dangers of uh, of being in a home with small children, right? Legos on the floor, um, but he's taking the initiative to teach and train those children. He, he's got a spiritual, biblically informed agenda, and he's carrying it out by taking the initiative and engaging kids uh, in conversation. Uh, notice also, number four, he's going to train children to listen. Uh, here it is, verse eight: Hear my son. He, he's commanding his kids to listen. And uh, if you're not a parent, maybe this is news to you. All the parents in the room will laugh uh, when we say this. But, you know, kids do not come into the world automatically trained to listen to you. In fact, we are competing as parents with all sorts of other things that are way more interesting than you and I are. And in the deception of those things, things that seem way more important than what mom and dad have to say. So we see Solomon here training his children how to listen, training them to the importance, and that goes right into the next thing, training children to take seriously his instruction. Okay, dad, I'll give you a couple of seconds, and then it goes in one ear and out the other. And when we see that in our children, we have to stop and say, no, wait a minute, there is important information that just got conveyed here, and I need you to think about this. And usually, if, if well, parenting at all levels, but usually it's it's getting them disconnected from whatever is going on in life to having an engaged conversation and then to see and this is the important part that they need to they need to do something with the information that mom and dad have just given them there's obedience or there's a change in their attitude or their actions. There, there's um, instruction that needs to result in them going and doing something with that information. So there, there's, a, there's a seriousness that needs to happen there. And again, all this is a part of training. Uh, Dad also trains his children not to dismiss teachings from parents. And uh, hear my son, your father's instruction, do not forsake your mother's teaching. You know what that means? That's what most kids do. Most kids just ditch it and say, okay, uh, what's for lunch today? And they've long forgotten about what dad or mom was, was telling them. So initiate, train them to listen, train them to take it seriously, and train them not to dismiss what is being said for other competing uh, things. And I love this too. Dad trains children to listen to mom. Dad, ta- dad is the one who trains children to listen to their mother. Um, That is such an important role. Uh, Mom and dad have equal authority in the home. Both are authoritative figures and teach and shepherd and instruct children. But this passage illustrates a very important reality, and that is dads, we have have a huge role to play in helping our children to take mom seriously, especially when we're not around. And uh, so we see Solomon really modeling that here. Okay? Now, notice also the content of Solomon's instruction, okay, with something of the background now. Let's look at some content. Again, this is by way of review. He uses two words. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. The word instruction translated here is the word I taught you last week. It's the Hebrew word musar, and it means training. It means, and remember uh, the the diagram, I'll I'll put it up here again for those of you that missed it. It's a very important, this is a key word in the book of of Hebrew, or book of Hebrews, <laughs> oh, bad habit, or habits are hard to break, aren't they? Um, so musar, and this is very important. It it means the best way to translate it is to translate it uh, training. The problem is in our English Bibles, it's going to get tra- it's going to get translated about six or eight different ways depending on the context because it has really three senses. Musar can mean instruction, as it does in our verse here. That's really what it means. It can mean um, uh, admonishment or warning, and it can also mean um, it can also mean correction. And then one expression of that correction is the use of the rod that we're going to see later on in the book of Proverbs, okay? So that's a very important key word. If if you want, um, there's... um There's the word chokmah, which is the word for wisdom in this book, and it's one of the key words. But another key word is musar. You need to know that. It means training. And depending on the context, it can mean instruction or correction or warning. And I would suggest to you on the basis of Proverbs, those are really the the three key elements of parenting. Parenting involves a lot of instruction. But you know what? Just because you educate people doesn't mean kids are going to be trained. You have to reinforce that with correction, including the use of um, physical punishment, the use of the rod. Um, there there has to be some consequences when children do not heed the instruction that they're taught. And then especially uh, as we move into the – well, it's, it's important in the younger years, but especially in the older years um, – Helping children to think by warning them about impending dangers, if you do that, if you choose to do that, what are the consequences going to be um, so those three aspects of that word really represent uh, three of the main elements of parenting so that's our word training that's translated instruction right here in chapter one verse eight, and uh, you need to know that The other word that's used here uh, translated teaching in the New American Standard means instruction and that that's the word do you remember what that one is you remember musar what, what's this one do you remember the Hebrew word that you all know? If you missed last week, you learned two two new Hebrew words. So, you know, uh, it pays to come to Sunday school. What's the other word? Torah. Yeah, it's Torah. Yeah, you guys know that, right? Instruction. We, we, we think of it as law, but um, it doesn't always mean law. It, uh, Torah, in its generic sense, just means instructions. So we have training and instruction. And that, that's what, God, that's what uh, Dad is doing as he sits down with his children and engages them. He's training them. He's instructing them, okay? Uh, I love uh, what uh, the Theological workbook of the Old Testament, and I, I changed in your notes here because um, it may have been unclear. Discipline, meaning training, our first word there, training. Discipline, meaning training, is education that is theocentric. That's one of the things we see is that all of this training instruction centers around who God is and what he does. And so parenting, we might say, is theocentric, uh, meaning everything we do in parenting should have a, a connection point to that child's relationship with God or need to have a relationship with God as they operate under his authority. Now notice uh, he moves on to the value of instruction, verse 9. This is again by way of review. Instruction and teaching from parents are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments or neck chains about your neck. We talked about that last time. Children must be trained to see the great value of wisdom. If you're competing with social media and you're competing with an Xbox and you're competing with Batman and you're competing with cool things that your kids have, you're going to have to work to help them to see the value of what you're teaching them as, expo- as, as, as compared to all the really neat things in a child's life. They must be trained to see the great value of wisdom, okay? Now, this is kind of where we left off last time, so let's pick it up here, okay? Notice the two enemies, there are two enemies that Solomon is going to address, two enemies that all children face, and so all parents need to be very, very aware Uh, of where the enemies are in parenting. One is the external enemies. Those are enemies of without. What's that? That's friends. That's entertainment. That's things in the culture. It's the values and belief systems of an ungodly world. What else? Come on, talk to me here. What what are the other external dangers to parenting? Instruction Instruction outside the home. What other voices... Uh, are competing with your voice as a parent for the heart of your child what else what's that tv entertainment yep yep okay lots of dangers out there and yet that's not where solomon is going to say the most um uh dangerous enemy lies in fact he's gonna he's gonna put his finger on the most dangerous enemy in proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 when he says son watch over your heart with all diligence, because it's from it that flows the springs of life, right? So there's an external enemy and there's an internal enemy, the enemy within and the enemies without. Now, he's going to start off by talking about the enemies from without. He's going to talk about the, the enemy of bad friends. Now, the danger here, of course, is competing counsel. There's another voice. Look at verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, what does that mean? If sinners entice you, what does that mean? Don't go along with the gang. What's that? Don't go, along with the gang. Don't go along with the gang about what? What's that? They you to sin. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This is the, the the picture here is there are other influences in your child's life that are going to compete with what you're telling them, and not only do you have to address those issues wisely you have to be aware of what those other influences are in fact that that that's a great sort of parenting uh, sobering evaluation is just just to stop and and uh and sit down with your spouse and say do i know the influences in my child's life and you know 25 years ago even 20 years ago y- you could in a sense Limit that geographically, couldn't you? You could know who their friends were. You could know who were the kids were in the band or on the sports team. And as long as you knew when and when they were not on the phone, right? But now there's this little thing today called social media. Social media. And a lot of parents, frankly, are, are profoundly ignorant of how social media works. And what that means is there can be voices that are majorly influential in your child's life, in your grandchild's life, in your great-grandchild's life that don't live in Granbury. They're not on the team, they're not in the band, they're not at school, they're not in a club, they're not at church. They're somewhere around the world. And these are not just peers their age. There are voices of people of all sorts of motivations and attitudes and goals and intentions where it's something as benign as trying to sell your kids something or something as dangerous as all the wickedness of things you could possibly think of available on the Internet. And notice with me, Dad is educated about the, fre- the threats of his family. Dad is not caught off guard going, it, it's it's face what? Facebag? No, Facebook. Oh yeah, oh that's great. He, it, it's not like he's ignorant. He knows what his children are doing. He knows where the threats are. He knows where the influences are. He knows the threats from without, even the electronic threats. And uh, guys, I would say today, if, if you're not... If you're not a parent that's an electronic type, that that biblical fidelity in parenting today necessitates that you educate yourself in that capacity. Or find somebody who you trust, who is, who can work with you. And this is a great, I think, opportunity for the church to come together, parents coming together, grandparents coming together, and the less technologically savvy, hanging out with some of the more technologically savvy, because that is necessary for the sake of our children's spiritual health today. So dad is, is dialed in, he's educated, and notice his counsel. Son, daughter, when that happens, don't consent. Are, are you ready for something shocking? Dad tells his children no. Alright? You see that? That is psychologically radical, according to today's experts. That it's okay. It's not just okay, It is imperative if you care about your son or daughter and you care something about what the Bible says, it is imperative to say to your child, if this happens, tell them no. It's not good for you. And now let's watch how this plays out. Let's watch the enticement of sinners in actions. Now what he's gonna do, Solomon's gonna give a snapshot. That was very 1995, wasn't it? Uh, he's gonna give, he's gonna give a short picture. Of how this works, okay? Watch how this works. He introduces the hypothetical, but very, very likely scenario of his children coming across some friends that are not good influences. My son, if sinners entice you, now, now, what is he talking about? Is he talking about, you know, people that are twice their kids' age? You know, that that's not by context what he's talking about. He's talking here about peers. He's talking about people the same age as the son or daughter. But notice what he calls them. He doesn't call them friends. He doesn't call them peers. What does he do? He calls them sinners. He calls them out and says, son, daughter, you, you need to see the threat for what it really is. You have to understand that even the, the vocabulary that we use with our children is significant. And we want to try to use biblical vocabulary as often as possible so that they don't they don't see, if I put a benign term on a threat, they're more likely to think, well, that's not as big a deal as mom and dad are making it out to be. So, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. So, so what do we have going on here? This is a teenage gang is what this is. It really is. This is a teenage group of thugs. And what's the danger of a gang? What's the danger and we could get some of you that are uh involved in um uh law enforcement or involved in in uh, teenage ministry all that to talk about this. The the danger of a gang as children move into junior high and high school age is the the, the attraction of that and the reason that is so seductive is it because it allows a teenager to find identity and community and those are two things, those are two issues that are going on in the life of a young person that are huge. They're growing into adulthood and they're saying, how do I think about myself? How do I think about myself as a person? And they're beginning to ask those adult type of questions in terms of who they are. What's their life going to be about? And that's where things like how they dress become very important Because how you dress is is what? That's a message of identity. That's who I am. It's what music I listen to. Why is that so important? Because it says something about who you are. Um, are, are you a jock? Are you a musician? Are you the intellectual? Are you the video game expert? You know, it, it, and, and we see children all these things going on in their life, and, and they're prone to grabbing one of them and then beginning to shape their identity around that one issue. And let's just come back to to spiritual sanity for a minute because this is why this book exists because what we as parents are supposed to do when we see those things going on in the life of our children is to help our children as they grow into young adulthood see that their identity is found first and foremost in the fact that they are made in the image and likeness of God. They are God's creation. That's their fundamental identity. And then we can can add to that, right? Uh, They are fallen. According to the Bible, meaning as a human race, we all are born into this world alienated from this God who created us. And so the relationship that we were made for is a relationship we can't have because of our sinful hearts and our sinful nature. And then that paves the way to talk to our young people about the gospel. And and this is guys, this is so important. Our young adults need to think about the gospel in terms of their identity. That that's the point. They, they are the, the ground is fertile at that point, to where they're looking for identity in all these other places, and we need to help them to find identity in who they are as an image bearer, and then who they are as they trust Christ to be His and to be a part of the family of God in that way. But but it's it's this it's this identity radar that's looking for something. It's pinging and it's looking for something that they can latch onto and say, this is who I am. Why, why do you think the, the homosexual agenda and the transgender movement is so powerful amongst young people? Because it's an identity. It's an identity that brings them attention. It's an identity that's a fad. It's an identity that um, there's a lot of special treatment going on with right now. And so to be a part of that bandwagon makes you somebody today. That's why it's popular, not because there's validity to it or there's any sort of factual basis behind it. But because it's an identity that young people can say, "Yeah, I I can latch on to that." And then notice the second part of this that's very important to young people. That is the issue of community. Community. That's why social media is so popular. We were made for relationship with other people. That, that's that's why um, <laughs> that's why God said to Adam way way back in Genesis two. You know what, buddy? It's not good that you're alone. And remember the context of Genesis 2. Adam was not sitting there picking petals, you know, off the daisies going, well, this garden is beautiful and I'm in paradise and there's no sin in the world yet, but I'm so lonely. That was not it at all. Adam was not lonely. He enjoyed fellowship with the God of the universe. He's working the garden. He's into his job having a great time. And it's God who says, you know what? I did not make you, Adam, to be alone. That's not good for you. So I'm going to do something about it. And and that one example and that we can spread out to the whole of Scripture shows us that people were really made for community. They were made for relationships with other people. And so the danger is, watch how this connects now, the danger is as young people move into adulthood and they are looking for identity and community, two necessities that are part of who God made them to be. Those are good things. And a young person is supposed to find community where? First in his family. That's where it's first supposed to happen. And then in the influence of godly friends and godly peers. And and certainly in the context of a local church. Those are are three areas where God designs um, biblical community to address this issue of uh, the community of people. But notice, what's the danger now? The danger is that this young person begins to look outside of God's program for identity and community. And that's why a gang is so dangerous. Because a gang provides identity and community to a person that's looking for it. Now, if you add, think about the danger of a gang. Now you add factors where maybe their family isn't so good, right? Maybe the family is having all sorts of problems. Maybe they don't have a local church. They don't have solid community. Many of you, I know, many of you would raise your hand this morning and say, you know what, as I think about my greater family, it's a mess. But Grace Bible Church is something of my family, isn't it? It's a family that in many regards is closer than even what many of us enjoy in biological family. And that's by God's design. That's the way it's supposed to be. But when young people don't have family, and they don't have church, and they don't have godly friends, you add that to the equation, and now finding identity and community in the wrong crowd becomes exceedingly dangerous. Now notice verse 11. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole, as those who go down to the pit. So we see in this gang what? Violence. Violence. They're coming together in identity and community, and the thing that they're involved in here is violent activity. Now, again, we could read this off the newspaper, couldn't we? This is what we read literally in the news every day. You say, we live in Hood County. That never happens. (laughs) Yes, it does. Way more than you might think, actually. Now, notice also another danger, not just violence that's going on here, but money Gaining money by unrighteous means motivated by greed. Now, we know young people never deal with those things, right? They're never interested in money. They're never interested in greed. Those are huge temptations. Listen to this. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. So they're coming together. They're finding identity and community. They're going out and doing violent things in order to gain monetary wealth. And they're motivated by greed. Now we might notice also that children are more, more vulnerable to the influence of ungodly friends when parents are not engaged in relationship and wise shepherding with them. Now, you guys understand, you, you could have, this is hypothetical because this, this, no one has a perfect family, but you, you could have the perfect family And all these things are still threats, right? You can have the perfect family, and all these things are still threats. Why? Because your son or daughter in here is a sinner, which means all those sinful things out there are still going to resonate with things inside of them that are ungodly and unrighteous. So having a godly home does not ensure that your children never go there. Okay, that, that's that's an unbiblical way of thinking about parenting. However, children are more vulnerable to these types of influences when parents are not engaged in um, wise and shepherding. Okay, and, and check this out. I you probably can't read that. Let me just read this to you. These are some facts compiled by the National Fatherhood Initiative. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of school than their classmates. 72% of all teenage murders grew up without fathers. Teenage murderers. Fatherless children are 11 times more likely than our children from intact families to exhibit violent behavior. 80% of adolescents in psychiatric hospitals come from fatherless homes. 70% of kids now incarcerated in juvenile correction facilities grew up in a single parent environment. Three of four teenage suicides occur in single parent families. And on and on and on. Department of Justice, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway youths are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who exhibit behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. And on and on. You get it, because dad is God's delivery vehicle for wisdom. Okay? Let me just say this too. Um, I know all of us in this room did not grow up with model godly families. And the fact that you're here today is a testimony of what? That God can do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think. That God works even in the broken families. God works even in the less than ideal families. And there is not a one of us that has a perfect family. But I just want you to stop and recognize that those, the, those these statistics are, are horrifically true. And it ought to motivate us as much as we can to be the dads, to be the grandparents, to be the church that we're called to be, that God works through imperfect means, to bring men and women to himself. And he has and he does. And many of us could stand up today and testify to the reality of that. You know, it, 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 may, be, it may be that your heavenly father is the only father you have. But that's the father he wants to be. So what does the counsel of a godly father look like? With, with all that in mind, here's the threat. Dad's educated. He knows what's going on. He's engaging his children. He's sitting down. He's not just talking with them about the World Series. He's not just talking to them about their grades. He's talking to them, notice with me, about threats to their spiritual life. And he sits down and he lays it out. He, he, and one of the things we're going to see Solomon do, he paints these pictures. He says, this is what's going to happen. This is probably what already is going to happen. We're going to see him do this again in Proverbs 5 with with the immoral woman. Son, you're going to see this lady. You're going to come across her. What do you do about it when that happens? Notice a godly father's counsel. And here we'll pick it up. Notice, first of all, that his counsel is tender. Look at this, verse 15. My son. You see that? Um, Though the threat is dangerous and violent and real and serious. We see a dad engaging with his children in tenderness. He's not yelling. He's not threatening. If I ever catch you with, it's my son. And we need to remember, dad, that that there's a, there's a ten, there's a, there's a tenderness that is the means by which we bring direct, strong, firm counsel. And that's what we see here, is a balance of that here. He's In a sense, what he's doing is he's speaking the truth in love, we might say. My son, notice what he says, do not walk in the way with them. It's clear and direct, right? There it is. It's tender, but it's direct and to the point. Don't walk in the way with them. Keep your feet From their path. Now, now notice the counsel here. Notice the counsel. Do not follow in their lifestyle. Do you see that little word way there? Do not walk in the way with them. Do you see that in verse 15? Okay, three of you see it. You guys see it. This is really important. Do you see the word way? Okay, that's the Hebrew word Derek. You're going to learn another word today. It's Derek. That's another theme. In the book, it's, it's actually a theme in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Psalms. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's Derek. You say, what's Derek? Let me tell you what a Derek is. Um, back in this day, of course, no paved roads, no cement, no asphalt. You had dirt roads. Okay? And uh, over time in the popular roads, uh, you know, the oxen would pull the cart or whatever animal you had pulling the cart, and they would go back and forth on these dirt roads, and over time, it would create wagon tracks in the dirt. These these entrenched, hard-packed uh, ruts or, or grooves in the ground. Okay? That's a derrick. That's derrick. It's a habit. It's a way of life. We always go back and forth that same way. We always do it that way. And so when he says, do not walk in the way with them, what he's saying is, son, you need to look at their lifestyle, look at their habits, look at how they handle things, and say, don't go near any of that. Don't don't let your wagon, so to speak, fall in their trenches in terms of what they do and how they live. But notice also, not just their lifestyle, you don't want to even be around them. You see that? Do not keep your feet far away from their path. Don't don't even go near them, he says. Now notice 16, and this is this is I think this is so instructive as a dad at reading this because I am prone as a dad to just tell my kids you do it because I told you. Right? And and especially when children are young, that needs to be the extent of the counsel, right? Mom or dad is speaking, you just need to do it, you just need to obey because we're establishing the authority that God gives us in the home. But as children get older, we don't just become those that give orders. We're trying to cha- uh, train our children how to think and how to solve problems for themselves and how to think about threats and make godly decisions. And that can't happen if all we continue to do is just give them orders. So, so notice, watch Solomon now. He's got probably a teenager sitting in front of him. Watch how he helps them to think about the situation. Look at this, verse 16. Why should you not walk in the way with them? Why should you keep your feet far from their path? Verse 16, because their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood, meaning they're they're quick to do something violent. Now listen to him do that. See, he teaches them how to think. They run quickly to evil. They're eager to shed blood. Son, think about this. Is that what you really want to do? Is the prospect of, of filling up your wallet with a few dollars, you think, yeah, that's good. I can go buy the next PlayStation game. And dad says, wait a minute. Think about the means. Think about how you're going to get there. Think about how you're going to get that money. Think about the people you're going to hurt in order to gain that wealth. Is that really wise? Is that really the person you want to be? And he helps them to think through the situation on their own. Notice the appeal. Look at this. There's an appeal here to known biblical morality, right? Look back at the text. Their feet run to... What does that, what does that assume? It assumes their children already know right from wrong, doesn't it? They already know good and evil. And here, all dad is doing is appealing to that knowledge and saying, think about this. Where's that gonna take you? Now, notice the godly father's counsel uses appropriate examples, illustrations, or stories. And and, and I love the story here. It's kind of hard to, the the Hebrew gets kind of muddled. But it says, um, indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. What is he saying? He's saying, even a dumb bird knows a trap when he sees it, right? And he says, he uses this illustration, uh, examples, illustrations, stories that, a wise father uses to understand biblical truth and remember it and and what's his point with a story even a dumb bird knows better and son you're way more you're way more uh, uh, intelligent than a dumb bird you say what does that mean it means it's a trap you're walking into a trap that will enslave you and ensnare you and get you into trouble why verse 18 because they lie in wait for their own blood they ambush their own lives He uses that to expose the foolishness with the light of biblical wisdom. Those who aim to ambush others actually end up destroying their own lives. You reap what you sow is what he's saying, right? And notice secondly, using the light of biblical wisdom to expose the foolishness of this opportunity. Those driven to violence by greed for money compromise ultimately their very lives. So we see dad sitting down, tenderly being direct, giving them counsel. He appeals to known biblical morality, which means this is not, this is not the first time dad has sat down with, sat down with them. That's what it means. Dad has taught them right and wrong. There's been an understanding of biblical morality in the home. And at this point in this teenager's life, the father is going to appeal to that biblical morality. And then, and, and notice, look at it. It says, Indeed, it is. Um, uh, but they lie in wait for their own blood; they ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. And we see Dad helping them to think through that that foolish opportunity in the light of biblical wisdom. Okay, pretty pretty radical stuff here. But we've got a dad who's sitting down with his kids, engaging in a meaningful spiritual conversation, warning and exhorting and encouraging. And um, this, is, this is the type of fatherhood that we need to rediscover today. It's the type of fatherhood that we want to model here in our church. Um, maybe you don't have children or you don't have children in the home or they're gone or you're into grandparent. Whatever it is, this is the sort of shepherding that needs to go on at all levels in the children's ministry and youth ministry here in our church, so we as the church have a chance to come alongside parents or come alongside families and help to um, uh, influence our young people along these lines. And uh, so let's uh, let's be a place that does that, both in our homes and in our church. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for the clear counsel of uh, Mr. Solomon here as he is um, helping us to look over his shoulder and see. Uh, what it means to operate as a biblical dad in a biblical home. Uh, Lord, we pray for our young people. We see the threats uh, inside of them and the threats outside of them. And uh, we want to be your agent of ministry and shepherding so that they grow to find their identity in Christ and to find their community in godly relationships and in the church. Uh, and that uh, we as a church want to be um, assistants to parents here in our midst and to children here um, as we seek to train them and raise them and point them to Christ and, and shepherd them in the dangers and the challenges that they will face. Uh, Lord, these are overwhelming things and we, um, we admit our great need for you. Uh, we, we confess that uh, as much as we want to, we cannot manufacture a faith in our children um, so we pray that you would be alive and at work in the lives of our children, drawing them to yourself. And Lord, we pray that uh, really the challenge of this text is we can be a part of what you're doing or we can work against what you're doing. And uh, Lord, as dads, as grandparents, as great-grandparents, as a church, we want to be a part of what you're doing in the lives of our young people. So will you help us to do that? In Christ's name we pray, Amen.